Let's pray together as we get into God's Word. Our gracious Father, we come before you today thanking you for who you are. This God who holds us, who will never let us go. You loved us so much that you would not keep your one only Son in heaven with you, but send Him to this earth to become like us. He might die for us. You raised Him from the dead because you accepted His sacrifice as sufficient enough to pay for our sin. And you received Him back to glory. And He now sits at your right hand Making intercession for us. How incredible. The love of God for us. And we, we confess to you, Lord, we, we have a hard time not only understanding that kind of love, but often we have a hard time receiving it because we know we are unworthy. But you don't call us to be worthy. You call us to understand that we don't deserve it, but we receive it as an act of grace toward us. I pray that today as we open your word, you will help us understand and appropriate the word of God as we seek to live out our faith before a watching world. That others have yet to come to know and understand and receive Jesus Christ personally, might do so before it is too late. Guide us into all the truth this day. In Christ's name, amen. Helicopter pilot Ian McConnell along with the rest of his air station crew, was summoned at 4 a.m. on the morning of August the 30th, 2005, to the Coast Guard Aviation Training Center in Mobile, Alabama. The center soon became one of the first bases of operations for Hurricane Katrina. McConnell and his crew were told to keep five H-60 helicopters airborne on missions at all times around the clock. The first airborne relief teams arrived in the affected areas before any news crews and were completely unprepared for what they saw. A train track running parallel to the ocean had been pushed inland 15 feet off its gravel bed. A houseboat was floating down U.S. Highway 90. The entire city of New Orleans stood underwater. McConnell's crew got right to work, airlifting stranded people from their rooftops and out of windows and delivering them to the Superdome helipad. To their chagrin, however, they were only able to help a relatively few amount of survivors. And in an interview, McConnell shared why. He said, on our first three missions, we saved the lives of 89 people, three dogs and a cat. 
On the fourth mission, to our great frustration, we save no one. But not for lack of trying. The dozens we attempted to rescue refused to pick up. Some people told us to simply bring them food and water. You are trying to live in unhealthy conditions and the water will stay for a very long time. He warned them. Still they refused. He said, I felt frustrated and angry since we had used our precious resources, time and fuel, and then put ourselves at risk during each rescue attempt. I felt like they were ungrateful. But, in truth, they did not know how desperate the situation really was. In reality, you and I have been called on a spiritual rescue mission. And the people we are called to rescue do not know how desperate their situation really is. The question is, do you and I know how desperate their situation really is? Do we understand the gravity of this reality? The pilots did not know until they got up in the air and they had a helicopter perspective on what had happened to that area. The devastation could be viewed from a higher perspective. This morning we want to begin looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, so that we might get, if you will, a helicopter perspective on the reality of not only the condition of unbelievers, of those who have yet to come to know Christ, but also what is it they need to understand, what is it that we need to understand to be able to help them in this rescue effort. One theologian referred to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 as the book of Romans in miniature. Because in these 10 verses, we have condensed for us the themes or the, uh, the essence of what in 11 chapters the Apostle Paul expounded on in Romans chapters 1 through 11. And so we're going to begin looking at this. We'll take a couple of weeks to, to finish kind of looking at what is going on here, but I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. As I read verses 1, through 10. <clears throat> Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us 
with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Probably a somewhat familiar passage to many of us. And yet, good to be reminded of what is being said here, of what the reality is, so that we not only know, but we understand the gravity of the circumstances from a spiritual perspective that humanity, those that we interact with on a regular basis, those all around us, people that God has put in our, our, our sphere of influence what their spiritual condition really is. So in the first three verses, we see our reality without Christ. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul, writing to a primarily Gentile audience in the church here, he, when he says you, is most likely referring to the Gentiles. And he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But notice in verse 3, he says among them we too, referring to himself and all Jews as well, all basically were in the same reality. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter what your nationality is, what your religious background is. The reality is that without Christ, we're all in this together. And what is that reality? We are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Dead means without life. Spiritually dead means without spiritual life. The word death literally means separation. When physical death occurs, there is a separation of the soul and the body. And when we attend a funeral and we see the body in the casket, spiritually, theologically, we must understand that person is not there anymore. Their soul is gone. There's just a shell of a person. It's just the outward body. The soul has, has left. And as good of a job as morticians do to, to make the person look like they did when, they were, when there was blood coursing through their body, you know when you look at them, they don't look the same. Not exactly. Because they're not there. There's a separation of soul and body. Spiritual death is the separation of a soul from God. And the reality is all of us are born because of sin and has been passed down, imputed to us since the garden. We're born spiritually dead. 
We're born separated from God. And the, the problem is compounded when those who are born spiritually dead, which is each one of us, when we live our entire life, physical life, in a spiritually dead condition, and we experience physical death, our soul leaves our body and is now, and it goes from spiritual death to eternal death. We are now eternally separated from God. We need to understand that. Some theologians refer to this as total depravity. And I realize that even within those who, who utilize that terminology, they define it with nuances differently. I want to tell you what I, I believe it, ultimately it means, this. It doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they possibly can be. What it does mean is that every person is as bad off as they possibly can be. One refers to our actions, the other to our condition. Not every person who is an unbeliever acts in their, their actions as bad as maybe somebody else does. But our condition before God is as bad off as it possibly can be. John MacArthur says this way, Throughout history, people have varied greatly in their levels of human goodness and wickedness. But in relation to achieving God's holiness, they are equal failures. That is why the good, helpful, kind, considerate, self-giving person needs salvation as much as the multiple murderer on death row. The person who is a good parent, a loving spouse, an honest worker, and a civic humanitarian needs Jesus Christ to save him or her from the eternal condemnation of hell as much as the skid row drunk or the heartless terrorist. They do not lead equally sinful lives but they are equally in the state of sin, equally separated from God and from spiritual life. He goes on to say, because it is a sinner's condition of sinfulness and not his particular sins that separate him from God, his particular acts of goodness cannot reconcile him to God. And so it's not an issue of, well, I'll just do more good things than bad things. The reality is, when you are spiritually dead, you cannot come alive by yourself. That's the reality we are in apart from Christ. That's the reality everyone is in. We can sometimes fool ourselves and think, well, that person acts better than a lot of Christians that I know. They must be a Christian. Or they must be okay. Apart from Christ, they're headed for an eternity separated from God. We've got to know that. They need life infused within them. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, which is again what he says here, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. There's a work of the Holy Spirit that must happen in the life of a person who is spiritually dead. It's called regeneration. What does that word mean? It means to become again. 
literally. It means the infusing of life again into that which has died. We were created with spiritual life as, a, as humanity in the garden. But when sin entered the picture, that ruined it. So we are born in sin, therefore we are born separated spiritually from God. We need life infused within us. Just about all of us experientially understand regeneration because we experience it almost every day. If you have one of these, right, you know this. That at some point, if you don't plug this thing in or connect it to some power source, eventually it's going to shut off. And no matter how many buttons you push, it isn't coming back on. Because the battery has died. And the only way to get this thing to come back on to be useful is to plug it in to a power source. So that that power source will regenerate the battery and infuse life back into it so that it becomes useful again. Now, obviously, that is not a perfect example because we know, technically, there's just a little wee bit of life there that's keeping things going, right? But that's not true for us. We are completely, utterly, spiritually without life. How do we know that's true? Because we walk in spiritual darkness. It says, in which, in this dead state on our trespass and sins, we walk, you walked formerly according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. What is the course of this world of which we walk? Of which Paul in, in verse 3 says, we too formerly lived, and it's a different world, but it means the same thing, to move about, to conduct ourselves. The way we go about life, we are doing this. And, and he says, we do it in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. These are all evidences. We are walking in spiritual darkness. The course of this world is the mindset of our culture. And we know what the mindset of this culture is. It is, it is anti-Bible. It is anti-God, anti-Christ. The whole culture works to distract us from God. As we talked about this before, we get so busy with all the stuff of this in this culture, in this world, that we never have time to process truth. We never have pr time to process who am I? Why am I here? Who created me? Am I responsible for this God? What do I do with the, the junk in my life? We, we, just, we just either medicate ourselves because we, we, we just don't want to think about it anymore with either, either drugs or alcohol or something to just numb us all the time. And we busy ourselves so much with, with information and, and entertainment and media and all this that we never, and it's a distraction. People are walking in accord with this. The prince of the power of the air. This is speaking of the devil himself, the enemy. And it's not air as we breathe and, and the atmosphere we know. And it's not that he's in control of the weather necessarily. It is talking about the spiritual realm. He's the ruler in that realm of, of demonic 
beings and, and, and the things that are going on, and, and he and, and all that he's in charge of there, that the intention is to, to get you to doubt the goodness and the greatness of God. If he can get you through something you're going through and the, how you feel about what you're going through and maybe how other people may be treating you, if he can get you to begin to doubt whether God is good or whether God is great, whether God loves you enough or whether God is big enough to handle this, if he can get us to doubt that, then he can get a hold in our life. And we all know that there's enough going on in our world that would tempt us in that direction, right? We've all been there. You might be there right now. You know, you might not say it out loud because that's not the Christian thing to say, but the reality is inside you're wondering, does God really care about what I'm going through? Does he love me enough? Because if he did, makes sense to me, he'd get me out of this problem. He would guide me in a different direction. He would have prevented this from happening, right? We, we doubt. Or we say, well, maybe God cares, but God apparently isn't big enough, strong enough, almighty enough to do something about it. And this is where, when those doubts start getting in, and we start allowing that to direct our thinking. I, we often can't prevent those doubts from coming. But what we do with them, we've got to, We've got to take those things back to the truth of the Word of God and believe the Word. Believe God at His Word and not all this stuff. But that's, that's what the enemy wants to do, wants to create in us. Then he talks about, verse 3, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. This is what's going on inside of us, the fallen nature, our sinful nature which ultimately seeks to dethrone God and put ourselves on the throne. That's why we need to be continually recentered. Because we, in our own nature, will take God off the center of the throne in our life and we will put ourselves there. And we will live as if I'm the most important person. I'm the most important being in all the universe. Everything is about me. That's how we walk in spiritual darkness. Right? He says we're indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and those desires could be all kinds of things. But oftentimes it's driven by what we feel. And again, this is a big thing in our culture. If you feel something, it must be true. We can't believe our feelings. And of the mind, the mind is deliberately chooses to go against the will of God. That's what happens. We walk in spiritual darkness. This is what happens. And Paul says, you were there. I was there. We're all there. And then he says, Thirdly, that we are destined for eternal destruction. He says we are by nature, as a result of being dead, and the evidence being that we walk in that spiritual darkness, we are destined for eternal destruction. Children of wrath. Children of wrath. 
And as we are sinners by nature and destined for God's holy wrath. God, we understand, God's wrath is not a flippant reaction to something in the heat of the moment. That's what we sometimes think about wrath. We think of it as maybe, maybe we grew up and we had maybe a volatile father or, or somebody in our life. Maybe you have a boss like this, something where, where one little thing happens and they just fly off the handle. You say, man, that, that reaction is not commensurate with what happened here. They just, some, often we think of wrath as that kind of reactive overreaction to something. That is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a calculated response of justice in light of sin. A holy God is going to act justly towards sin. And that justice is to be separated and punished from God. And so that is what we're destined for in our spiritual dead condition because of sin. That's the reality apart from Christ. Again, in our, in our culture, we tend to view everyone as a child of God. And so everyone talks, when somebody, a loved one, passes away, Everyone talks about, well, they're, they're looking down from, from heaven for me. That's not true if they're not a believer. We, that might make us feel better, but that's not biblically true. The, though we are all children of God through creation, we are not all children of God through salvation. All who are without Christ are children of wrath. Children of wrath. Paul puts it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, this says, verses 8 and 9, dealing out, this is God, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's the reality. Those who are not in Christ. We need to understand that. If we don't, then we probably will not be motivated to step out of our comfort zone to build a relationship with somebody for the purpose of seeing them possibly come to know Christ. We'll probably never, never initiate an awkward conversation about spiritual things. We probably won't spend time praying for them because we've got plenty of other things that impact our personal life that we can talk to God about. But when we understand this, it changes the way we, we view people. It motivates us. But this isn't the end of the story. Verse 4 says, but God. That's the good news. But God. God's love through Christ. Those two little words change everything. But God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, these two words in and of themselves 
in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. But God, here's us in our, in our deadness, in our hopelessness, in our helplessness. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, Mercy, my best understanding, mercy it means not getting what we deserve. What do we deserve? Because of our sin and the fact that we are sinners. We deserve God's wrath. We are children of wrath. Mercy says you don't get what you deserve. Grace, as he goes on to say, by grace you've been saved, grace is getting what you do not deserve. That is salvation. We deserve wrath. Mercy doesn't give it to us. We don't deserve to be saved in the presence of God for all of eternity, but grace gives it to us. Because of His great love with which He loved us, God's work on our behalf has nothing to do with whether we did anything or will ever do anything to merit this. It has everything to do with God's sovereign choice. God's great love. That's what motivated Him to send His Son to experience the wrath we deserve on our behalf. Because of His great love with which He loved us. The love He had acted and He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. And so He did three things for us that He says here. He made us alive with Christ. We were dead, unable to come alive on our own. We were separated from God. He made us alive. He brought us back into a relationship with God. Because He removed the thing <clears throat> that had separated us, our sin. He paid for it. Took it out of the way. <clears throat> and He saved us. We are saved by grace, right? Saved. The word saved here is in the perfect tense in the, in the Greek, the original Greek. And what that means is that it's a completed action with results that continue in the present. Our salvation was completed by Christ in the past, but has results in the present and into the future. The results are that I am, because of Christ, <clears throat> and we'll talk about next week, this our response of faith and, and our, our accepting that gift by God's grace, because of that, the work that Christ had accomplished in the past is mine here in the present. And so I can say, I am saved. But it continues into the future. And I have the guarantee that I will be saved. That when I breathe my last breath on this earth and I experience physical death and my soul is removed from my body, my soul will go to be with Him 
Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul said, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is because of the past work of Christ on my behalf. And I am trusting in that and that alone for that salvation. He made us alive while we were dead. He gave us life. He infused life into us. He raised us up, he said. Verse 6. Raised us up. The positional reality that results in a present and future reality. We are raised up with Christ. He says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Sorry, we'll start with verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too, the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of His resurrection. We are made alive and we are raised up with Him. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we are raised. And you go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians and you see what, what Paul said about Christ. Verse 19, What is the surpassing greatness of His, that is God's power toward us who believe, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He did what? He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly, in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name in His name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus was, was raised and seated at, at the right hand of God. And then He says about us, we are made alive in Christ, we are raised with Christ, and then we are seated with Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are identified with Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and we are now positionally in the presence of God. That's our position. We are seated with Christ as fellow heirs in the grace of life. That's what God does through Jesus Christ. That's what has to happen in the life of one who does not know Christ yet. This idea of being seated with him, I think, at his throne is, is a, an idea of, of like being in the presence of Christ. This, this intimacy and this re, uh, revelation we have by being in his presence, seated right with him. This is our privilege as believers. We need to know that so that we know there is hope for those who are in this reality apart from Christ. We must believe that the gospel can transform lives. Those of us who grew up in the church, as I did, heard the gospel from the time I could understand anything. I, I heard these things, believed it as a child, and often we, we forget because our lives were so 
surrounded by, by Christianity and the way Christians live. And so our actions were not as evident on the outside as what someone who did not grow up that way. And their actions are maybe much more externally sinful looking. We don't always understand the transforming power of God. Because in all reality, externally, I always looked like a Christian. You know, I obeyed my parents and I, I did all the right kinds of things. But my heart was wicked. I cultivated things in my heart. This lust of the flesh and all that stuff was, was true within my heart. Though everybody will look at me and say, eh, he's, he's just one of them goody two-shoes. Never does anything wrong. But I needed Christ every bit as much as the person who was doing all these things externally. transforming work of God. John Stott puts it like this. Talking about this but God and all that's entailed in this in these few verses. These two monosyllables but God set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God. We were the objects of His wrath but God, out of the great love with which He loved us, had mercy upon us. We were dead, and dead men do not rise. But God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves in a situation of dishonor and powerlessness. But God has raised us with Christ and has set us at His own right hand in a position of honor and power. Thus God has taken action to reverse our condition in sin. Why did he do that? First of all, because he loves us. And maybe it isn't until we're a parent that we really understand that. That our children do not have to act a certain way for us to love them. I love them because they're ours. Valerie said the other day to our daughter who's um, having her first grandchild uh, in February. She said, I can't understand how I can love this little one so much. I haven't even met her yet. Because she's ours. We belong to God. We're, our, we're His children. He loves us. We often forget that, do we not? Because we tend to focus upon our crud. God says, I love you in spite of the crud. I love you so much. I sent my son to rescue you from what you deserve. And I've given you what you don't deserve. And I'm looking forward to the day I can see you face to face. You see me face to face. And we can rejoice in that for all of eternity. 
There's another reason why. Verse 7. In order that. Purpose, that's a purpose statement. In order that. In order that what? That in the ages to come, that is, not just the very future future, but leading up to that, and now all and on, in these ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He might put on display His grace. When you and I see somebody whose life has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is God putting on display the riches of His kindness. When the world sees the transformation of a sinner to one who is trusting and relying upon God and is looking to God for forgiveness and for, for help in, in the things of this world. They see the kindness of God on display. One of the problems we have, we get this wrong so many times, and that is we think a good witness for Jesus is that we live a, a perfect life on the outside. If we can show the world what a good Christian looks like, I don't want to, know, don't want to come to Christ. I've had enough conversations with people that say, I can never be like that, so therefore I can never be a Christian. And I keep telling them, Christians are not perfect. But as long as we continue to put on a perfect facade, and we all know we're not perfect, so as long as we continue to pretend to be perfect before a watching world, they're never going to come to Christ through that testimony. I'm not saying they never will because that's the work of God. I'm saying our testimony is flawed. What they need to see is people who are real, who mess up, but know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with it. So they medicate themselves with all kinds of stuff of this world. We know what to do with it. We bring it before a loving God who has already provided salvation for us and forgiveness, and we, we confess it. And we admit it. We walk in that by faith. And we love people where they are. That's transformation. When they see that, they say, maybe there is hope. Maybe there's something to it. I can find fake people outside the church as well as in the church. And if being fake is what it's about, I don't have to go to church and I don't have to give my money and I don't have to do all the things that they think is part of being part of the body of Christ that they see as negative. But when they see it real, when they see authentically lived out, God uses that witness because now it's about the work of Christ, not about us cleaning our life up. And we then become, as we walk through these ages, 
the display of the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness. I'll end with this quote from F.F. Bruce. He says, In thus lavishing His mercy on sinners, giving them a share in Christ's risen life and in His exaltation, right? We are seated with Him, raised and seated with Him. God has a further purpose, namely that they should serve as a demonstration of His grace to all succeeding ages. It implies one age supervening on another like successive waves of the sea as far into the future as thought can reach. Throughout time and into eternity, the church, the society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of His goodness. The surpassing greatness of His power exerted in raising Christ that we read about in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, is matched by the surpassing wealth of His grace in His dealings with those who belong to Christ. Because they are in Christ Jesus, He deals with them as He has dealt with Jesus. The vindication and exaltation that Christ has received, which we see in chapter 1 there, are by His right, because He is perfect, because He is the Son of God, because He deserves it. The share in that vindication and exaltation bestowed on believers in Christ is theirs by divine mercy, grace, and kindness. And so as we live out our faith authentically, loving people, and living in the reality, when we mess up, we confess it, when we, when we, um, we, we live out of our weakness and our vulnerability, not out of our pretend uh, strength that we don't even have, when we do that, the world sees the grace and kindness of God. And they are drawn to Jesus because of it. Next week we're going to look at the last couple verses of this section as we look at this grace through faith and that fact that we are His workmanship. Would you stand as we conclude our service in prayer and benediction? Gracious Father, it is with heaviness that we realize the, the reality of all who are yet still apart from Christ. God, would you would you use the truth that we see here to impact us. Maybe first that we realize what it is that you've delivered us from. That you would create in us a, a more a, a deeper gratitude within our hearts toward you. And that also, Lord, you would motivate our hearts when we look at others, we don't see people who are difficult to deal with, people we'd rather not spend time with. But we, like Jesus, would look upon the crowds and, have, and see them with compassion as sheep without a shepherd, as people who need Christ desperately, as those people who did not know 
the devastation all around them back in 2005 in New Orleans. They did not know how desperate their situation was, and so they rejected the help that was offered. God, there will be people who have no idea, no idea at all, how desperate their situation really is. God, give us that perspective. May we have compassion. And may we love them where they are. Bringing them food and water. Loving them for Jesus' sake. And as we have opportunity, continuing to talk to them. And praying that there will be blinders removed. And, and, and that they would understand conviction, repentance, and they would get to the point where they realize, I need Christ. God, help us to know we're on mission for God as we walk this earth. May we put on display through our broken lives the glorious, surpassing riches of your grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That they may see us and the good work which you have done in our lives and glorify our Father in heaven. And now to him who is able to do exceeding abundant beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to Him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.